Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Will new funding from the province speed up development approvals, making Hamilton homes more affordable? Outgoing Hamilton Chamber of Commerce President Keenan Loomis throwing his hat into the mayoral race. What does Rod Phillips' departure mean for this summer's Ontario election? Some grocery stores may be forced to close due to product and labor shortages. We chat with the food professor. Can algorithm reform help against the next wave of extremists online? And Apple's my message has led to digital peer pressure. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. We do a double take on the long-awaited housing summit in this province. And the question I think many are asking is, will this new funding promised by the province help speed up development approvals and make Hamilton homes more affordable? Because we have seen the price tags of these homes skyrockets over the last number of years, especially over the last 12 to 16 months. Fred Eisenberger is the mayor of the city of Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Good morning, Fred. Good morning, Rick, and thanks for the uh, Foo Fighters hit this morning. I appreciate that. (laughs) No problem. $45 million being promised by the provincial government. Is is this a good start? Will it help Hamilton homebuyers? Uh, it'll help with the, uh, you know, funding our, our approvals process. And, you know, you may, you may know that we've been at, uh, you know, refining and, uh, uh, removing red tape out of our approvals process for the past six years, but there's always more to do. And there are, you know, there certainly are staffing levels that are concerned, uh, that, uh, you know, obviously is a, uh, sometimes a bit of a roadblock in terms of getting more approvals done uh, more quickly. So it'll, it'll, uh, be a help. It doesn't, it doesn't solve the problem. It's, uh, this is a, complex, uh, multifaceted, multi-government issue that uh, isn't going to be solved by kind of one one investment, but uh, clearly uh, it's not going to hurt. So I don't want to get too much into the nitty-gritty of this 45 mil, but what can and can't this money be used for? Can you hire more staff, or is this just a process uh, um, fund, I guess? Yeah, the uh, you know, I guess we'd hired more staff to help help us look at process, and uh, figure out ways of uh, streamlining that process uh, to the best degree possible. So, uh, you know, I don't have all the details yet in terms of they announced it yesterday. Uh, so we haven't seen all the details in terms of what this funding could do. We'll, uh, we'll do. So I, I think we're eligible for $1.7 million through this fund. And so we'll uh, have to check on the the details. That the, the devil's always in the details. And we'll check on that and, and obviously utilize it to the best degree possible to, uh, to have a positive effect on the uh, the approvals process and or timelines in terms of the approvals that we're uh, currently facing. Our topic here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, housing affordability, or more accurately, unaffordability, and not only in this city, but province-wide. Our guest is Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger here on GMH. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. What, what more needs to be done? Is there an item or two that you would hope that you have on your wish list that is going to come down the pipe? You know, one of the uh, the more significant challenges is, and I think acknowledged by everyone, is the capacity of the industry to actually build more housing. Uh, so there is a there is a significant skills trade shortage, uh, not only in Hamilton, but right across the country. Uh, it is a, a challenge through the immigration process that doesn't put a priority on uh, electricians and carpenters and uh, and bricklayers as uh, as you know a high high-value immigration target that uh, we want to bring into this country, and I think that needs to change. 
the training system uh, in the, in uh, you know our colleges and universities is robust, but there aren't enough graduates coming out of those uh, those courses to uh, to be able to provide the kind of uh, human resources to to be able to build. So there's a there's a real significant capacity issue, and you know all the money in the world doesn't fix that tomorrow. Uh, there needs to be some very very defined and uh, progressive steps taken to try and provide the kind of skills training that will provide more uh, more individuals that are able to do the work that's necessary to get these houses built. In Hamilton, right now, we have approved about 8,000 units that uh, are not being built. And that is uh, that is clearly a capacity issue. I know in Mississauga that, that number is at about 20,000. And so there's a, there's a backlog of what could be built not yet built because the capacity in the industry just isn't there. Uh, we got about a minute left, and I hope this isn't uh, too far out in left field. Uh, but we heard uh, yesterday that uh, Keenan Loomis is resigning as uh, the president and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce to take a run at the mayor's seat. Uh, as the current sitting mayor, does that change your approach on what you do this fall? Uh, no. Um, uh, you know, I, I appreciate that uh, there'll be candidates stepping forward. The actual uh, sign-up day is, is in May. Uh, so uh, I have not yet uh, decided what my intentions will be. I wouldn't bet against it, but uh, I'm focused right now on, on pandemic and the housing challenges we just spoke of, uh, the waterfront development that's happening, uh, LRT, of course, is on the horizon, and many, many other challenges, including the budgets that we're uh, working through. So I'll, uh, I'll turn my mind to what I'm uh, going to do a little later on, but right now that's going to be my predominant focus. And, you know, I'll... Uh, I'll Anyone 18 years of age or over um, and is a citizen of the city of Hamilton is eligible to uh, to step up for uh, for elected office. So I expect more of that will happen, and we'll, uh, it'll be an interesting year. Uh, definitely so. Lots of challenges ahead, but there are some great things happening in this city as well. Fred, appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Thanks, Rick. Have a great day. You too. That's Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger chatting with us about housing affordability and a little election talk as well. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. So many people from, you know, either me being uh, within this leadership uh, position or just on the street as I'm walking my kids to school. Um, there's a huge desire for change and for fresh faces and new voices at City Hall, and I want to be that. That is the voice of Hamilton Chamber of Commerce outgoing President Keenan Loomis, who's announced that he will be throwing his hat into the ring to run for the mayor's seat in this city. And look at that! Keenan Loomis joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Keenan, how are you? I'm doing well. Good morning, Rick. Why is now the right time for you to take a run at the mayor's seat? Well, it's it's two parts. Uh, first of all, I've been almost nine years at the chamber now, and uh, really have uh, transformed the organization from top to bottom. Not just myself, obviously, but with an incredible team and with the support of our membership. And so, I think uh, the surest part of all of this is that my tenure at the chamber has uh, has come to a culmination, and I'm ready to move on. And it also happens to be a uh, mayoral election year and i think that uh, you know we're often told to be the change that we want to see and i think that uh, you know i've been at the the forefront um and have had a seat at the table over the last decade uh and witness to all of the amazing opportunities that have uh, come hamilton's way also uh you know have seen a lot of uh, the the other challenging issues too from uh, inside and out 
And I think I'm the person you know most qualified to be leading the city into the future. Some people might be thinking you're out of your mind to do this during a pandemic. <laughs> well, obviously, the the nature of of managing organizations, campaigns, all of that, uh, yeah, it, it has changed, and we've all had to adapt. Um, you know, my my hope is that uh, this Omicron variant will flame out as quickly as it emerged, and we'll be back to you know, folks. Remember, don't don't think about uh, and, and despair about uh, you know March of 2020, but uh, think about the the fall and, and uh, last summer and how things were starting to uh, to open up and and feel quote unquote normal again, and I think we're going to be back there sooner than uh, than we think, and 2022 should be I have my fingers cr- crossed here uh, a much better year than we've had in, in the last couple. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is outgoing president and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce and mayoral candidate in the city of Hamilton, Keenan Loomis. Do you want to take this city in a new or a different direction? What's your vision? Well, my vision for the city is to take advantage of the opportunities that we have in front of us. Um, You know, as, as so many people know, I've um, been a champion of our Beeline LRT project uh, since, uh, well, even before I came into my role at the chamber. And, you know, we, we did it last year. It, uh, it uh, got confirmed and uh, we're going forward on that. And so now, you know, now we got to build the thing. And obviously that's a, a whole new uh, challenge. And, um, you know, I've been studying that issue for a really long time. We've been talking with Metrolinx and the city of Hamilton about how we mitigate the impacts to uh, the businesses. So, uh, you know, we've studied this uh, uh, long and hard. We looked at uh, so many other communities and, and how they were able to, to manage, uh, learned from communities that haven't been uh, implementing their LRT systems in, in the best ways. And uh, so that's going to be a big issue. And, and then all of the the other development that's going to come along with it. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a very exciting time for Hamilton. But of course, then, you know, there are challenges as well that we've got to uh, grapple with. And I think the, the encampment issue and, and homelessness is first and foremost, uh, you know, not just from a Chamber of Commerce perspective, but from, uh, you know, as a citizen of this community. This is something we have to grapple with. And I feel that so many of the uh, well, their their personalities, egos, um, you know, past histories are in the way of us being able to solve this issue. So, you know, what we've done at the chamber over the last ten years is bring together uh, not just the private sector, but so many other elements uh, of this community. Uh, for example, in support of uh, LRT, and we got that done. And I think that that you know, if we apply that to all of the other issues. I think that we can make a lot more progress than we're making right now. Uh, we've got about a minute left with uh, Keenan Loomis. Uh, you opened up the can of worms of LRT. I won't go there because I'm confident it, it will happen. But I will ask you this because you also brought up the uh, encampments issue, and that goes along the lines of housing inaffordability, really, in this community. What's your sense on how to turn the tide and get more people into affordable homes in the city? Well, you know, support great organizations like Indwell, uh, that's for sure. Um, and, and when it comes to development, I think it's really important that we talk to the developers. We talk to Metrolinx, so they're a, a major landholder right now in the city. Um, and we are having those discussions. We're talking about the community benefits agreements and so not just, you know, affordable housing, but all the other things that, that go with uh, this investment and how do we optimize that 
but uh, affordable housing is uh, is one of the big ones uh, for sure, and uh, and and that will help uh, address the homelessness issue. There's of course that whole other issue of you know the 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 characteristics of uh, the the homeless and the acuity um, that's required in the in the full wraparound support. So it's not just about finding them space; it's about also coordinating, you know, all the services um, that you wrap around uh, um, folks who are uh, you know at the margins in this way, and 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 really work to address that. And like I said, it's 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 just not happening right now uh, with the the type of urgency that we need to be applying to this matter. Keenan, we got to run. Best of luck on your run to the mayor's seat, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Keenan Loomis, Hamilton mayoral candidate and outgoing president and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Fascinating article online at TVO.org, and it is written by John Michael McGrath. What does the departure of Rod Phillips mean for the Ontario election, essentially? is uh, what the article is all about. John is a digital media producer at TVO and joins us now. John, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm fantastic. This is a really well-written article, and, you know, it, it begs the question, is Rod Phillips' departure yet another chink in the armor for the provincial PC party? Is this another nail in the coffin? You know, uh, a few weeks ago, seeing some other uh, MPPs announce their uh, departures. Jeff Urich, the former environment minister, uh, said he, he would not be running again. And at the time, I thought, oh, well, you know, this happens in politics. You know, everybody leaves eventually. Um, Rod Phillips' departure really uh, changed my thinking. Uh, I, I think at least some conservatives uh, are, are wondering what the next election holds and whether it's frankly, worth uh, sticking around. Um, you know, what I tried to sort of explain in that article is that it's going to be a lot tougher for Doug Ford to get reelected in 2022 than it was for him to get elected in the first place in 2018. Uh, a lot of the uh, forces that they had pushing at their backs uh, in 2018 aren't there anymore. And uh, now, uh, you know, even aside from uh, the question of um, uh, managing the pandemic uh, over the last two years, They've got uh, a bunch of other more sort of um, structural factors, I would say, that are going to make it more difficult. Uh, and, uh, you know, Rod Phillips' own riding in Ajax is the kind of riding that they desperately need to hold on to uh, if they are going to maintain their majority at the legislature. What are those structural factors that you're referring to? Well, the biggest one is that I think you're going to see uh, and, and are already seeing uh, some kind of resurgence of the Ontario Liberal Party. Uh, obviously, uh, they are, are still not in first place. Uh, uh, well, I think one poll showed them in first place very, very narrowly. But, uh, I, you know, I wouldn't put too much weight on that. Um, but, but certainly you're not seeing anything like the um, revulsion, for lack of a better word, that we saw in 2018. Uh, not everybody knows who Stephen Del Duca, the current Liberal leader, is, uh, is uh, right now, but uh, they certainly uh, don't have the the really you know vitriolic antipathy for him that they had for Kathleen Wynne. Uh, so you know that's a good thing for the Liberals, and it's a bad thing for uh, the Tories because you know in general in most elections you would expect that uh, you know if the Liberals start to grow their support back. Uh, it's going to come uh, primarily at the expense of the NDP, uh, but uh, there are going to be a lot of seats specifically in Toronto and in the 905, the, the, the region surrounding Toronto, that uh, you know are potentially going to flip from conservative to liberal. 
And, uh, you know, the, the, the Tories just don't have that many seats that they can afford to lose. Yeah, they uh, started with 76. Uh, they're now, I think they've lost uh, nine or 10 of those. Uh, other, you know, uh, MPPs uh, now sitting at Queen's Park are going to say goodbye, like uh, the likes of uh, Rod Phillips. Uh, John Michael McGrath is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. He's a digital media producer at TVO and has written a great opinion piece on uh, the website tvo.org, what Rod Phillips' departure means for the upcoming election. You mentioned Stephen Del Duca. I want to get to him in a second, but Andrea Horvath and the NDP still sitting in second. What are the odds we we see an NDP party return to power? It's been uh, only once in this province, and it's been a it's been a while. I mean, based on the polls at the moment, uh, I wouldn't say the odds are terribly high. Uh, now, polls can change, right? That's <laughs> that's the wonderful thing about election campaigns is that uh, you know uh, even you know a few weeks before the 2015 election, uh, the, the federal election, Justin Trudeau was in third place, right, and then he became prime minister. So campaigns matter. Um, I would say that Andrea Horvath is probably in her last election if she doesn't uh, win government outright. Um, I, I just can't imagine her sticking around uh, in opposition for another round, especially, you know, as is possible, if uh, the NDP uh, are uh, relegated back to third place in the legislature. Uh, if, if they suffer that kind of a defeat, uh, I think most people would tell you that uh, Andrew Horvath would be an outgoing NDP leader at that point. To uh, Del Duca, who, uh, yes, was, uh, you know, transportation minister in the Wynn government uh, back in the day. Uh, do they have enough behind them to uh, not only make a serious run for power in Ontario, but can they, uh, you know, uh, not allow the, I guess, the voting public to split the vote between them and the NDP and uh, and still find a voice in this province? What, what's your outlook for the, the Liberal Party in this election campaign? So on, on vote splitting, I, I have this, my own pet theory is basically that Ontario voters are incredibly sensitive to the idea of a vote split among progressives anyway, uh, letting conservatives have an easy win. And, uh, you know, what we saw in 2018 was that a lot of liberal voters uh, defected from the Liberal Party and, and voted for New Democrats at that, at that time uh, in the hopes of trying to get a, 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 a non-conservative elected. And so I think that one of the, the trends I'll be w- watching for in, uh, you know, the coming months is, uh, you know, I think the electorate is going to sort out the vote split by themselves to a certain extent. You'll, you'll just see either the Liberals will shift to the NDP or the NDP will shift to the Liberals, but you're not going to see the kind of even splitting that we're seeing right now. Um, as for the Liberals and Stephen Del Duca, you know, uh, at the moment they are, depending on which poll you look at, they're in the high 20s, the low 30s, and, uh, you know, that's, that's a decent starting place. What is uh, really going to save them if, uh, you know, if Stephen Del Duca is, you know, the Premier of Ontario after June 2nd. Um, I, I suspect it will not be because he's leading a majority in the legislature. Uh, again, if you're looking at the polls right now, that just doesn't seem to be in the cards. Uh, but he doesn't have to be, uh, because at the moment, all of the opposition parties agree that if it's a minority legislature, uh, they will not support Doug Ford as Premier. And so you could have a situation in which the Tories win the most seats, don't win a majority, and somebody else ends up being Premier. It's only going to get more interesting from here. John, appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much.
John Michael McGrath, digital media producer at TVO. Check out the article TVO.org. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The inflation challenge uh, that the world is facing right now is a global challenge linked to, obviously, this pandemic and the path out of it, but also linked to significant disruptions in supply chains around the world. And as Prime Minister uh, Justin Trudeau on rising inflation, supply chain issues, those issues certainly having an impact on the way we are being, uh, a way we are shopping in our local grocery stores, so much so that uh, some grocery stores are thinking about closing due to product and labor shortages. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, the food professor, is a professor of food distribution and policy and the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University and is our guest here on GMH. Good morning, Dr. Charlebois. Good morning. How close are we to seeing some stores closing the doors because of these product and labor shortages? Well, it's uh, it's. It's already happening. Uh, so out west, uh, Save On Foods has announced that it, it, it is going to allow uh, 50% of, of capacity to go into the store uh, for consumers. That's a bit of a sign. Now they're using uh, public health office and social distancing as, as, a, as, a, as an excuse. But again, I, I think there, there, is some, uh, there is some concerns there in terms of capacity. And, and frankly, I, I, I don't blame them because, uh, I mean, procurement has been a challenge uh, to get food, uh, <clears throat> especially produce uh, in particular. Uh, all, all across the country, we're seeing empty shelves in, in that section of the grocery store, in the middle of the store as well with groceries and, and dry goods. So uh, it's, it's messy out there. So grocers are... are are going to try to, uh, I guess, recalibrate their uh, their supply strategy just because you know empty shelves are are bad for business, really. The Canadian Federation of Independent Grocers has said employee absenteeism due to COVID protocols has hit about 30% across the country. Canadian food manufacturers cutting capacity due to these labor shortages and, and supply chain issues also a factor as well. That's all compounding the issue, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I'd say that there are four factors. And of course, what, uh, what retailers are experiencing, it's the same in processing, by the way. You're basically asking the food industry to do everything as usual with uh, minus 23% less staff uh, at, with perishable products. So it's quite the challenge. Uh, so the four factors, I would say, so Omicron, obviously, is the big one. Uh, it has slowed things way down across the board. And so, uh, so com- companies are, are, are trying to execute and deliver with fewer people. And so something's got to give. And, I, and you, even, even before Omicron, you, you felt that the food industry was experiencing some supply chain fatigue, essentially, because I, I was noticing some empty shelves. Nobody was talking about it, but I was noticing empty shelves, and it just got worse with Omicron. Uh, the second factor... Uh, there's been there was a food recall for salads, and I, I know a lot of people have actually contacted me saying, "Well, we're we're out of salad in Canada." Well, uh, yes, because of a recall. It's not because of <laughs> it's not because of uh, you know the the vaccine mandate or or Omicron. It's I think the the recall had something to do with that. Third, the weather. Uh, I mean, most uh, most major markets Canada. Uh, were hit by uh, by an epic uh, snowstorm in in recent weeks, including the GTA this week. So 
that will slow things down logistically. And finally, the vaccine mandate at the border is not helping. Uh, it's hard to point, uh, you know, at an empty shelf and say this this is really because of the vaccine mandate. But it's that measure uh, implementing something like that in the middle of January with snowstorms uh, is a little ill-timed. So I, I wish we could have waited a little bit. It's, it's certainly some, not something that the food industry needed at this point. No, not at all. And hopefully that relief comes soon. Dr. Charlebaugh, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks for joining us this morning. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Sylvain Charlebaugh, the food professor, professor of food distribution and policy, and the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Great series on the World Wide Web, and it just happens to be at globalnews.ca. It's called Influenced, and here to tell us about the latest installment is Amanda Connolly, award-winning senior political reporter with Global News. Amanda, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Uh, The latest angle looks at how incels are using the Internet to target the next generation of extremists. So what is happening? Yeah, this this is a a piece of work that certainly has been about three months in the making here. And and really what we learned is that there there is uh, quite a, a number of incels, those men who describe themselves as involuntarily celibate, who are turning to the internet as really a recruiting tool to, as you mentioned there, and as experts say, target the next generation of extremists among Canadian youth. So certainly, again, we've heard concerns about the potential for radicalization online throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, the broad kind of societal trauma that this is causing and the confusion and the fear. Certainly, though, what, what we, we know now and we are seeing from this report and the evidence that's out there is that this is happening and it's happening not just to adults, to older men, but to children as young as 10 and 12 years old. Uh, reading through the article, it basically takes just a few clicks of the mouse to take a wrong turn. It's so easy to do, it seems. It is. I have to say, it really is surprisingly easy. And I, I was a little bit um, unsure myself kind of how simple it would be to stumble across this. So I tried it out. I actually went on YouTube using an incognito browser, a new, uh, entirely new email account, just to try and see how, you know, how long would it take before the algorithms here were going to recommend some of this content to me as kind of a new user here without the, the internet search history. Four clicks is all it took before YouTube was recommending a video about, uh, as the host was putting it, embracing the idea of violence in a society that despises what it means to be a man. Wow. So how surprising was it that it just took four clicks to get to that? You know, one of the things I think that we hear a lot about is is that there there is a risk online. There are, There is this kind of content online. But what people don't necessarily realize is simply how easy it is to find. I had certainly, you know, just, just put in some very generic search terms around things like self-esteem on, on YouTube. And, and this is something that I heard again and again from experts is that young men, boys even, who are looking for things like dating advice or advice on, you know, nutrition, weightlifting, bodybuilding, fitness, things like that. All of these are, are some of the search terms and the topics that the far right and incels in particular are really using as kind of an entry point to get this content in front of young eyeballs and be able to kind of bring them into this ideology. Because, of course, uh, there, there is a lot of confusion about there. There are a lot of changing definitions about what it means to be a man in this day and age. And so there are a lot of people out li- on, online right now who are looking to take advantage of that and really torque some of the young minds out there.
A new Global News series called Influenced is online, globalnews.ca, and we're chatting with Amanda Connolly here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Amanda is a senior political reporter with Global News, and uh, today we're talking about the latest installment in this Influence series, which focuses on extremism online and how, as you've heard, how easy it is to get hooked. Um, algorithm reform has certainly been a hot topic, whether it's the Facebook papers, what's happened on Instagram. Um, is it coming? And more importantly, if it does come, will it work? This really is the big question right now, and I think that you hit the nail on the head. There is so much talk and so much concern about the algorithms that are effectively powering what content you see online. These are what determine what pops up in your Instagram feed, on your Facebook feed, even your Google search results, or when you go on YouTube and look for a video. And there's really very little control that the average user or even governments have to be able to influence any of this content and say they're, you know, we, we certainly are seeing some social media companies saying we're going to crack down more on extremist content, but particularly when it comes to things that might not explicitly cross the line, there's no clear rules for what that content should be, or even whether people should be allowed to make money off of what's known increasingly as borderline content, content that is a bit in the gray area that raises questions that might be towing the line towards promoting things like violence, but not, again, explicitly crossing that line. And so certainly the government has been under some pressure over the past couple of years to really act to crack down on online hate, specifically the ability of this to flourish and go uh, circulating and, and sharing around the Internet. We really don't know, though, what when that will actually come or even whether the, the government's promises that they have said they are working on will include algorithm reform. You also spoke with a representative from a support program in the GTA, which is the only in Canada that focus on de-radicalizing young boys uh, or young men and boys. How widespread of an issue is this? This is really what what experts are, are describing as a growing concern. This is happening more and more often. It's becoming easier than ever for children to encounter this kind of material online. It happens, you know, we, we've talked about YouTube, about Facebook, Instagram, things like that. But video game chat rooms as well are one of the things that I heard from the experts I was talking to um, and, and one of the, the forums where, where young people can engage with some of these uh, recruiters, effectively, who are using those forums to kind of get different buzzwords and different topics in front of people uh, in, in these, these kind of more casual forums. And so certainly a, a number of warning signs and then things like that for people to look out for about the, the young men and the boys in their lives, things like, um, you know, look, looking at new politics or different websites. Uh, if, if someone is un- talking suddenly about um, new encounters and sites that are unfamiliar, using language that's anti-woman or anti-immigrant or anti-government or being secretive, really, about what they're doing online. All of these experts are saying are, are some warning flags. But the tricky part really is that a lot of people are nervous. They're afraid to come forward and they're afraid to seek help for loved ones who might be displaying some of this behavior because there is, again, um, it can be really challenging to talk about some of these things, about why someone might be espousing certain anti-woman or anti-immigrant or um, anti-government views, particularly when it comes to things like, uh, you know, questions around will more rights for women, for example, lead to less rights for men? Obviously, the answer there is no. But having a forum to actually work through that and address some of these concerns that young people might be raising in this time of, you know, again, shifting a lot of shifting definitions about what it means to be um, a man or a woman and things like that. Experts are saying there, there has to be a safe way to work through these so that these young, young boys and young men are not turning to strangers online who are going to twist 
the questions that they're asking. It's a fascinating yet troubling story, and it is a reality in our country and others as well. You can get more details on Global News series Influenced on globalnews.ca. Amanda, thank you for your time and fantastic article online. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Amanda Connolly, senior political reporter at Global News. You can find out more details online, globalnews.ca. Check out the Influenced series. It is a pretty remarkable. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Why is Apple's iMessage winning? A fascinating story out of the Wall Street Journal that I stumbled upon the other day. And it all revolves around the color of the texting bubble. This is fascinating stuff. Carmi Levy is a tech analyst and journalist and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Carmi. Hello, Rick. Great to be here. So the essence of this story is that uh, Apple, obviously the creator of the iPhone, has um, uh, arranged for this iMessage texting system to be colored blue. So when you send in an iMessage to from one Apple uh, device to another, you'll see it in blue. Non-Apple users, I guess, are sending their text messages, and Apple users are getting that in a different color. Am I explaining that correctly? You absolutely are. And if you're Android, your messages come through in green. If you're iPhone, your messages come through in blue. And of course, that's the ultimate form of branding because blue identifies you as a member of the, you know, the Apple elite. Whereas, you know, if you're green, eh, it's just Android. And so it's become a thing among people. It's a status symbol. You know, you only have the green bubble, then you're not quite in the in crowd. And Apple has succeeded very, very effectively at sort of separating its devices simply by color alone, to the point that, and I, and I can speak from personal experience, my kids uh, bristled at the prospect of, of being part of their group chats with their friends, and uh, their messages were green, and everyone else's were blue. Uh, and it was a big day of celebration in our house when uh, it was time <laughs> for us to switch phones, and we went to iPhone, uh, partly because of that. And so kudos to Apple. They've managed to create brand connectedness in a way that no one else has, because uh, you know, color apparently is a thing. Who knew? So this is social or really peer pressure peer pressure in the digital age. It really is. And, and you know, it, this all goes back to we all sort of we, we tend to forget the bad old days of messaging. Uh, you know, basic text messaging on a phone is based on a standard called SMS. This goes back decades to when all you could do was send a text message. You couldn't send attachments. You couldn't do, send photos or make videos or anything like that. Um, you couldn't see when the other person was typing, you know, those dots or dancing. You couldn't tell if the message was delivered or read. It just went off into the ether. That's SMS. It's just this lousy old standard. The good thing about SMS is everybody uses it. So Apple, you know, back in 2011, which is when iMessage came along, when Apple introduced it, um, the industry was struggling. You know, we want to have better messaging. We want it to be secure. We want it to support rich media. Um, but the industry couldn't agree on, well, how are we going to replace this old SMS? So Apple went ahead and just built its own iMessage. And that's kind of where why we have that color thing today is that Apple didn't wait for the rest of the industry. It said, you know, we've got iPhones. We're just going to support our own standard. And we know in the industry that's always been this big struggle between do you do what everyone else does and maybe water it down or do you build your own and kind of create this little walled garden, this castle. And that's what Apple has done. iMessage is better than SMS because it has all of these cool features built into it. And they've been adding to them over the years. 
Uh, and Apple says, look, basically, we built this playground. If we want to have blue bubbles, then we're going to have blue bubbles. There is an option to turn off iMessage, but my guess is uh, Apple users dare not do it. <laughs> I don't think I've ever met anyone who has an iMessage <laughs> ever done that. Why would you do that? Why? You know, if, if your car has air conditioning and a really good stereo and navigation and all those good things in it, why would you want to turn them off if you've already paid for them? And I think that's kind of the logic behind uh, you know, having all those features available in iMessage and taking advantage of them, you wouldn't want to go back to the bad old days of messaging. And, and, I, and I don't think I've, I've never encountered anyone who has an iPhone. I speak for myself. It's one of the devices that I use day to day. Who's ever turned them off just because they are better uh, than what is available on any other phone for the most part? Uh, and people really like them. It's one of the reasons why they buy an iPhone in the first place, which is ultimately why, this, why Apple does this. They're not, they're not doing this because they want to be different. They're doing this because they want people to go, mm, you know, when I'm buying a phone, I want to buy the iPhone because it has these features. That's called marketing. Carmi Levy is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Carmi is a tech analyst and journalist chatting about uh, iMessage and how it is uh, ruling the roost in terms of uh, texting applications. Uh, has this led to greater sales for, for iPhones because of this? Well, it certainly has. I mean, Apple has been setting records for iPhone sales uh, quarter after quarter for, you know, ever since they first introduced it 15 years ago. So it's hard to argue against Apple's strategy. It's clearly achieved what it set out to achieve. Android phones are still more popular globally, but in North America, iPhone dominates the market. Uh, And more importantly, it isn't just about the number of iPhones that are sold. It's Apple makes a lot more money or margin for every iPhone that they sell than other manufacturers like Samsung or Google make when they sell an Android-powered phone. There's just more money in iPhones. Uh, There's more money on the device itself, more money in the services that Apple wraps around it. So Apple has created what we like to call an ecosystem. So you don't just buy the phone, but you kind of buy into the lifestyle, you buy into the services, and and that kind of keeps you stuck to them for far longer. Uh, and they've done a much better job of it uh, than Android has. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying this as a fanboy. This isn't just that I prefer one over the other. Uh, the data makes it very clear that, that Apple's iPhone business is far more profitable, far more lucrative than anything else on the planet. And the reason for it is they've figured out where to inject value into the process, uh, even if sometimes it means they go their own way. Can Android or can uh, Google with their Pixel say, uh, you know what, we, we want our texting now to be blue. Is is that allowed? Um, no, they can't. So because Apple has, and this is where that, whole, that age-old struggle between sort of Apple's decision to do things its own way and then the industry's desire to have common standards among everyone uh, kind of clash. Is, is Apple has decided that iPhone messages will be have blue bubbles and Android messages within iMessage will have green bubbles. Apple has also decided precisely how much Android users will be able to take advantage of. In other words, they can share messages back and forth with uh, people who use iPhones, but they can't have access to some of the more advanced features within iMessage. And it's one of the reasons why Apple leaders in emails that have been uncovered as part of other court cases, it shows very clearly, you know, we're not going to turn on these features because we want people to have a reason to buy iPhones. It's all part of, you know, incentivizing people to want to buy an iPhone, an Apple product. And so, you know, if the industry had a common standard that everyone had to adhere to, this wouldn't be an issue. But Apple has clearly gone its own way. And usually, usually we sort of, we, we want to have open standards. We want to have everyone to have access to the same things. But in this case, 
it's been decades since SMS has, has come along. There hasn't been a new standard, the RCS standard that was supposed to replace SMS. Um, it was first proposed in 2007, introduced in 2016. The industry still hasn't figured out a way to get everybody on board. And Apple basically said, we're not going to wait forever. We've got to come up with something on our own, even if it means that we're a little bit different than everyone else. And, uh, well, the company's doing okay as well. Uh, Carmi, appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Rick. Carmi Levy, tech analyst and journalist, uh, chatting to us about iMessage and how it is uh, ruling the roost in terms of the text applications that are out there and uh, in obviously enticing the younger crowds to j- jump into the, uh, not only jump into the phone market, but get an Apple device. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.